Today's scripture passage, I'd ask you to turn, if you have your Bibles or on your devices, turn to Joel chapter 2. Joel is a small book near the end of the Old Testament. It's after Hosea and it's before Amos, Joel chapter 2. And I'm just going to read two verses this morning, 28 and 29, and this is the word of the Lord. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And our second passage today from the New Testament, and it'll be our sermon passage, will be from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And Acts, of course, is after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, early in the New Testament. Acts chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, and while they were Gazing into the heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And this ends the reading of the word of God. May God add his blessing to it. Well, good morning, Cedar Springs, uh, and, and happy Mother's Day to all of those of you who are moms. I hope it's just a wonderful day for you, and uh, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be with you a little bit longer while you look for your pastor. You, know, you mean a lot to me, and I'm glad that we get to go through these crazy times together. Well, as Mark just said, one of the great challenges of our current moment is is not knowing what to expect. Um, we don't know what school will look like in the fall. We don't know whether we'll have to lock down again. We don't know how the economy will recover. We don't know when we'll be able to worship again, at least in the way that we did. And so it makes it kind of hard to plan. Uh, and when you don't know how to plan for the future, it makes it hard to know what to do tomorrow. And I think this is hard, even when you're hopeful, as I am, that God is at work in the midst of all of this, that something old is growing away and something new is emerging. And as hopeful as that is, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm a trapeze artist that let go of one handle and hasn't caught the new one yet. And so it's hard to know how to live when you're kind of in that disorienting tension. 
You know, I think the disciples knew that feeling. You know, something old had definitely fallen away. Uh, Easter weekend, they knew that. They'd met with the risen Lord. They'd spent 40 days with him studying the kingdom of God. Something new was emerging, but they had no idea what the new normal was going to look like. And so they want to know the plan, just like us. Uh, They asked Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, devout Jews in Jesus's day had a, a very clear idea of what that would look like. Uh, God will restore a political uh, military kingdom to Israel. Israel will break free from Rome, triumph over her enemies. Uh, A great military leader, a second son of David, will rule in a way that Israel's glory outstrips all the former glory of David. So that's what the disciples thought God was going to do. Well, Jesus has spent 40 days with them talking about the kingdom of God We don't have the the transcripts, but if you study what he says about the kingdom in the Gospels and how the kingdom breaks in in the book of Acts, his vision of the kingdom is somewhat different from their vision of the kingdom. And even though they've spent 40 days with him, they're having a real hard time sort of letting go of their old script and embracing the new script that God is writing. It's hard to do. (laughs) It's really hard to do. You know, we spend years kind of thinking, I think I know how God works. I think I know what he's doing. And then something happens and it all gets turned upside down. And it's just, it's it's hard to change scripts. But I think this is important. Sometimes we have to let go of the old script in order to embrace the new script that God is writing. Uh, that's one way to think about repentance. It's, it's letting go of the old script so that we can open up to the new one. And for some of us, and I know we're all experiencing this in different ways, for some of us, there needs to be a period of lament or grieving. And, and beloved, this is very important work to do, uh, to, to just consciously Pay attention to what you lost, to what you let go of. You might even want to write it out. That's what the Bible calls lamenting. And we need to go through that lament, the things that we've lost, so that then we're free to receive the new thing that's coming. So have you done that uh, lament work yet? Well, what do you do when you're not sure what time it is? And the disciples essentially asked that question. Hey, hey, what's the plan? We're not sure what's going on here. And I see four simple practices in this little passage that will help us live faithfully when we don't know what time it is. Practice number one, let go of your need to know the future. (laughs) Jesus says to the guys, he says, look, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority. He says, guys, God is in control, but he's not going to let you know how this is going to play out. It's going to be different than you thought, and you just need to trust him. (laughs) Um, Easier said than done. It's not wrong, right, to want to know a little bit about the future. Um, 
Proverbs says planning's a good thing. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent come to abundance. It's not bad to plan, but here's what I see happening in my heart and, and maybe sometimes around me. You can go from a legitimate desire to plan, to be a wise steward, into an obsessive, a compulsive demand to know what's going to happen next. And when that shifts, it moves us away from peace and trust into fear and anxiety. And, and we start just paying attention to, to every expert that's going to tell us how the virus is going to play out. I mean, this week I, I went into Trader Joe's and I had my little mask on and I found myself at the checkout and the poor guy's trying to get my bags together. And I, I start asking him, how long do you think this is going to last? <laughs> like the poor guy at Trader Joe's knows. He's just trying to not get sick. It's silly. And here's, here's the illusion, right? We actually never know what time it is. <laughs> we never know what's going to happen. We might have thought we did, but we didn't. James puts it like this. He says in James 4.13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. I'll tell you what you should say. If the Lord wills, we'll live and do this or that. <laughs> so one of the healthiest things we can do in a pandemic time like this is just admit, we don't know the future. We're not going to know it. And just trust. Second practice to help us live faithfully in a in between the, the two handles of the trapeze, admit that you are powerless. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of the Spirit. The citizens of the kingdom of God are people of the Spirit. The power that fuels the kingdom of God are, is the power of the Spirit. Paul describes the spiritual power of the kingdom uh, in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and in power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You see, in the kingdom of God, the people of God live by the power of the Spirit of God. And Paul puts it like this in Romans 8. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so this is the primary difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant understanding of the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit rarely empowered a few leaders in the old covenant to do certain works. But in the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes upon an end to every believer and every believer has access to the power of the Spirit. When Thomas Edison invented uh, the light bulb, uh, the power source for uh, like lighting your home was uh, either gas or candlelight. And then he found this new power source, electricity, and brought it into the home. And so there was a transition from an old, inferior power source to a better power source. 
And that's what's happening right here in the book of Acts in this transitional period. The disciples and the church and the people of God are moving from an old power source of faithful law-keeping to a new power source of the Holy Spirit. And that power is so important. Jesus says, guys, to the disciples, and I think he'd say this to us, he'd say to the people of God, you can't really do what I'm asking you to do without the Spirit. In your flesh, you have no power to do it. So wait. And he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, Samaria and to the end of the earth. A number of years ago, we put one of our children into a car to go back to school, and they had a little old beat-up Toyota. And about four hours later, we got a panic phone call, and, and she said, Dad, I, I put diesel into it. <laughs> and it shut down. And she learned a painful lesson that day, that you've got to have the right kind of fuel for the car to work. The right kind of fuel for the believer is the Holy Spirit. And if you try to power the Christian life with faithful law-keeping, you'll wreck the engine. If you are honest with yourself, what power fuels your Christian life? Faithful law-keeping or the power of the Holy Spirit? One of the biggest ways to invoke the power of the Spirit is just to declare your powerlessness. Um, I wonder if you'd think for a moment about the biggest challenge that you're facing right now in your life. You know, maybe you're overwhelmed thinking about parenting kids this summer when so many of the resources are gone. Or maybe you don't know how long your startup company is going to be able to last. Maybe you see these reports of the virus coming back in the fall and you're just like, I don't know how I would do that. Or perhaps you've been diagnosed with a serious illness and your family's wondering what it will look like to walk through it. Maybe your marriage is struggling. and You weren't meant to work at home together. You're wondering if you're going to make it. Or maybe you'd hope to change jobs and you were set up for a move and now that's all blown up and you feel trapped. Well, what do you do when you, you're facing something that it just feels overwhelming and challenging? Well, as a man or a woman or a child of the kingdom of God, declare that you're powerless. And I don't mean that you're not competent. I don't mean that you're not smart, that you're not trained. I mean... You lack the power to do the kind of things that the kingdom of God calls you to be about and do. Those are only done by the Spirit. You know, I've had this twin battle going on between hope and fear, and I think hope is winning. Um, that's been my greatest challenge, is to figure out how to be a pastor in this new context. And this week I wrote a a prayer in my journal, and I, I thought I'd read it to you. This is just how I'm working through this. Dear Father, 
you are the God of all hope. You put seasons and times in their places, and I trust you. You're a good father, and I see every day how you are at work among us. God, you are stretching me. You're changing me in ways that never would have happened without the pandemic, and I choose hope. But some days, Father, I feel anxious about the future. Yes, I can feel the old yielding to the new. I can smell the new wine being poured. But I don't always know how to join you in the new thing. I feel like the career I trained for and learned how to do fairly well has ended. And now at 58, I feel like I'm starting all over again. I'm thankful for the kingdom opportunities ahead, and I want my 60s to be my most fruitful years so far. But I declare that I and my flesh am powerless to do what you've asked me to do. Too often I've relied on long hours and my degrees and reading one more book to get me through. But that is not the power of your kingdom. In fact, as I look now at what I've written, I can see that I have often fueled my life by old covenant power. I regret that. That way is exhausting. I am powerless. I need you to fill me with your spirit and make me the kind of person you want me to be. You know, if, if that's where you find yourself and God leads you maybe to write something into your journal declaring your powerlessness, um, or maybe if you have a lament, uh, and if you feel so inclined, uh, I, I would love to read it. You could email me at doug at allsoulsknoxville.com or message me on Facebook. I may not always be able to respond, but uh, one of the things I'm having to learn is how to pastor virtually. And these days, this is, this is how we're connecting. So I'd love to know more about what God is doing in your life. Well, there's a third practice for living faithfully when you don't know what time it is, and it's, it's witness. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And it's as if Jesus says, you know, you know, disciples, I know you're disoriented. I know you want to know what's going to happen next, but you can't. So here's what you do when you don't know what to do. Witness. <laughs> the Greek word uh, is martyrus. We get our word martyr from it, someone who witnesses through their life and death. Um, a witness is someone who tells others about what they've seen or heard. And what we'll find in the book of Acts is that when the early Christians witnessed, there was a lot of content to it, but it was more than just sharing facts about Jesus. What they were witnessing to was their transformed lives that come about their relationship with the risen Christ. 
And so witnessing is not something you do on Tuesday night. It's not a program. It's not an event. It's not a discipline. It just is what happens as you are in Christ, as you deepen in Christ, it grows out of you and it flows naturally into your lifestyle. There are two ways that the believers witness in Acts. They witness with their words. And Peter and John tell the authorities, hey, we can't stop speaking about what we've seen and heard, Acts 4.20. And they witness with their lives. The, the attractiveness of the Christian way of life was a major reason why the gospel spread so rapidly across the Roman Empire. Um, the sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, How the Obscure Marginal Jesus Movement became the dominant force in the Western world in a few centuries. And he identifies a number of reasons about why the church grew. And uh, here's just a quick summary of the book, why Christianity grew. Christians preached a God who loved and called others to love. Christians cared for the poor in ways the government and other religions did not. Christians treated women better than other religions did. Christians regarded all human life as sacred. Christians welcomed all ethnic groups into their community. Christians offered a stable, loving community to isolated, fearful people. Christians asked for a sacrificial commitment. And Christians had a hope in life after death. And his point in the book was that this community, the way that they were living was so attractive that it drew men and women into the, the band of followers called Christians. Now, why? Why, why did God's people live that way? Um, was it a, a program or a strategy? No, <laughs> they knew the risen Christ. They were, uh, we call it spiritual formation. They were being formed in the image of Christ. They were in relationship with Christ. And what happens when you start to love Jesus and know Jesus is you start to care about the things that Jesus cares about. It's not a program. It just happens. Um, you care about the spread of the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. You, you care about the widow and the orphan. You care about the health of your soul. You, you care about heaven. You care about worship. You care about God's word. You care about the vulnerable. Uh, you care about injustice. Um, you care about your neighbor as you care for yourself. You care about broken relationships that need healing. You care about stewarding, stewarding the, the creation. You care about the church's mission and give towards it. So again, it's not a program. It's just your heart is transformed by the risen Christ. And this just naturally starts to kind of seep out. You really don't get the feeling in Acts that, that somebody has is just kind of managing this from an office somewhere. One commentator on Acts writes, no phase of the history of the church and its missionary work is work planned by the apostles, but is God's assignment on the basis of God's power. Remember what we said last week, the, the hero of the book of Acts is God. He's the main actor. 
Well, well, citizens in the Roman Empire, Stark points this out, lived in a lot of fear. Uh, plague stalked them. There were, I think, three major plagues that just ripped through the Roman Empire. There was disease. There was famine. Uh, fire in tenement houses was an enormous problem. Many refugees were coming in from the countryside into the urban areas. Uh, the old gods were failing and not respected any war, anymore. And people lived in and fear... And the Christians came in in a quiet, gentle way. They had no power. They had no seminaries, no institutional power. But they created these witnessing communities, almost a sacramental community that advertised what God was like. And people naturally were drawn into that communal way of being in the way of Christ. And that's something we'll see too in Acts is that witnessing is very communal. It's not usually done just by yourself and when, when, I, when I talk about witnessing, I don't mean so much just sort of, a, sort of this inauthentic triumphalism where you just sort of uh, go off on a, on, on a speech about how great God is and nothing else matters in this life as if you didn't really care about people on ventilators or people losing jobs. That's not what I mean by witnessing. What I, what I mean is that you get with your people, your circle, your, your healing community, and you know who that is, the people that you're following the way of Christ with, and you just gently start to love your neighbors. And you start to practice hospitality. You, you lead your community and your organizations with a peaceful, non-anxious presence. You, you act sacrificially towards your employees or your children, your students, and, and, and you welcome people in. And then as Peter says, you share the hope that's within you. I think that's more the biblical vision for witnessing. See, we, we have a choice to make right now. We can, we can worry and let that be the dominant narrative is what's going to happen. I need to hoard my stuff, live out of scarcity, and, and just kind of turn inward. I got to protect, protect me and my own. Or we can witness. We can live out of abundance. We can open our arms and sacrifice for others. And that's a wonderful way to live in this crisis. Well, the last practice um, we'll just call look up. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. Jesus' earthly ministry is now complete. He has ascended into heaven and he will come again as we sang this morning in the same way. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, says this is when Jesus received the power and the authority to become the head of the church. God raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of him who fills all in all. I find such comfort in this. Friends, Jesus has not left us alone in this. He is risen, he is exalted, he is here with his spirit, and he's guiding us through this. Now, next week we'll we'll see that the first thing the disciples do after the ascension is they they come together for prayer. (laughs) And uh, I I think that is the logical implication of the ascension. (laughs) If Jesus is really the head of his church, if he's really present with us by his spirit, then prayer is the way we discern how we're going to live for him in the summer ahead. So what time is it? We don't know. We're not going to (laughs) know. But in the meantime, we know what to do. Let go of your need to know the future. Admit you are powerless. Witness and look up. Let's pray. Lord, I think what's on my heart as we end this morning is just what does it look like to practice hospitality in a time of social distancing? I know we want to witness to our friends and neighbors. I know we want to invite them into the way of Christ. We also want to be safe and obey our government. Would you show us What does it look like to love well, to care well for the lonely, the isolated, the hurting? I just saw a news report about how many people in New York hospitals die and have no one to pick up their body. How many people in Knoxville uh, had a birthday this month and nobody called? Would you give us sensitivity, even to the folks right within our own circle that may be feeling fearful and afraid, and show us, risen Christ, how to extend hospitality and draw others in. We ask this in your name. Amen.